Hi, I'm Channing. And I'm Elise. And this is the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We focus on feminist interpretation of scriptures and follow the LDS Come Follow Me manual as a guide for study. We understand that scriptures can be a tricky endeavor for readers, but we also believe sacred texts contain really compelling examples of loving and liberating relationships with the divine, others, and ourselves. We hope you'll join us in exploring the problems and promises of sacred text with imagination, critique, and celebration to reveal what we feel is the loving and liberating heart of scripture. While Mormonism, with its iconic floral foyer couches, is our background, we follow our faith and our God on the path of spirituality over institution and connection over condemnation. We are fellow wanderers, weavers, and doubters. If you found yourself feeling too faithful for some and not enough for others, welcome. We've saved you a seat on the soft chairs. Hi, everyone. Welcome back for our episode. Today, we're covering the chapters Matthew chapter 15 through 17 and Mark chapter 7 through 9 for the dates April 10th through the 16th. In these chapters, we have two primary moments that we're going to focus on. The first being, of course, Jesus's transfiguration. And secondly, we're going to focus on the story of the Syrophoenician woman because we have a lot of thoughts and love for her. So we're excited for that today. Yes, 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 yes. So like this was one episode that when we got to the New Testament that I was like, I cannot wait to cover her story. So we're really excited that we're finally here. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that we'll go ahead and start in Matthew chapter 17. The first nine verses outline this really like powerful transfiguration moment. And you know how like all year I've been very much into Jesus prioritizing his alone time, like Mm -hmm. typically that's spent (laughs) on mountains away from the city. Well, this story takes place also on a mountaintop, but Jesus has decided to bring some of his dearest friends, Peter, James, and John. On the mountain, Jesus is transfigured or like changes form and some holy ancestors like Moses and Elias arrive to support Jesus. Then a voice speaks out from a cloud and testifies of Jesus's identity saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. First, I think that this transfiguration story can absolutely be read and understood as a coming out moment for Jesus. For example, from the Queer Theologies podcast episode titled Transfiguration, Jesus Comes Out, they comment, quote, This is a moment where Jesus brings his closest friends to a secluded place, and he reveals to them the deepest truth about himself, that he has this connection with God that is unlike what most people have with God, end quote. And even though I love spending time alone, I really resonate with this desire to want to share our deepest truths with our friends, because without this bit of authenticity, it can feel like we're leading two different lives at the same time. Continuing on this thread, the Queer Theology Bible podcast continues, quote, This is why coming out in the queer community is often such an important thing, because until we are able to express fully who we are, we feel like we're hiding a piece of ourselves or that we're not being fully authentic, or that we're not fully in relationship with other people, end quote. And although, of course, Jesus has been hinting at and parabolizing his identity with his friends for a while now, this is the most vulnerable and authentic he's been around this particular topic. And while his human friends are there, his holy ancestors also show up and offer him support and encouragement. 
We like to think that Moses and Elias have been some of Jesus' greatest confidants, along with others like Miriam and Esther, who have helped him learn more about who he is and know that he's not alone, that he'll always have a host of ancestors cheering him on. These holy ancestors, and presumably God in the talking cloud, also offer verbal affirmation of Jesus' identity and his mission. Another part that I really love about this story is that while this is all going on, Peter like really wants to make sure that everyone stays safe up here on the mountaintop, and he wants to just stay there forever. And so he offers to build three houses or three shelters, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elias on this mountaintop so that they never have to leave and that everyone can like stay safe and revel in the glory and celebration of this really big moment, aka Peter never wants to have to come down from the mountaintop. And like, first of all, I get it. Being on a mountaintop with friends and ancestors and joy sounds way better than being at the foot of the mountain with 500 hungry people or in the city with money changers or in the streets with suffering neighbors. Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney puts it this way, quote, It was Mardi Gras on the mountaintop. Peter, James, and John had stumbled into one heck of a party. There were strobe lights and sound effects and VIP gate crashers. Perhaps there was even the sound of a heavenly brass band. And Peter didn't want the party to stop. He didn't want to come down from that mountaintop. He didn't want to go back into the world below, that cold, hard, ugly world from which he came. He wanted to stay in the rarefied air of that little mountain, end quote. And for me, I think what's so tender about this moment is that sometimes we just want to hold on to the good parts of life for as long as we possibly can. We want to build shelters in celebration of authenticity and the comfort of friendship. We want to feel at rest and at peace without trouble or strife. Gaffney continues to write, quote, Peter doesn't want to go down into the valley of Lenten discipline and deprivation. There is death and self-denial at the foot of that mountain. There is disease and demonic possession at that foot of that mountain. There's just too much need, too many folks and too little time. And they all want to cut in on Peter's time with Jesus. If they just stayed on the mountaintop a little while longer, they might just forget there was anybody else outside their privileged circle, hungry, hoping, desperate, dreaming, waiting for them to come down and live the gospel, end mm-hmm. quote. Mm-hmm. Often, Elise and I feel like we can relate to not wanting to come back down from the mountain and face the world as it is. Sometimes we want to hermit away in our shelters and privilege and security. But we think this is a message against hermiting. Instead, we think we can learn to carry the hope of the mountaintop with us as we make our way back to the valley. Mountaintop moments are incredibly necessary and important, but it's not where we stay because we live in the messy, difficult world of ditches and ravines and flatlands, which is why in this story, Jesus ends up leading the entire group back down the mountain as he begins the next phase of his mission. And then guess what happens when they get there? We get another revelation of God made flesh in Jesus as he tends to a man and his son. Of this, Gaffney writes, quote, And there, at the base of the mountain, Jesus gives them another glimpse of God. He shows them God in service. God revealed in the glory of the cloud, attended by the holy ancestors, is also God who ministers to the desperately ill. Jesus came down from that mountain because his sisters and brothers needed him. I needed him. You needed him. The world needed him. We need him. 
And Peter and James and John needed to learn how to be the church in the valley, in the field, in the streets, and in the trenches, end quote. In other words, we come down from the mountaintop because we need each other, and we can't make it if all of us are building separate shelters and ignoring the tangible, material ways we need to be taking action in the here and now world. So in closing, I hope that we bring our, I really do hope that we bring our friends to the mountains with us where we can be honest and celebrate and come out and gain perspective. I hope that our ancestors attend to us and fill up our cups. I hope we lay down all cozy with the ones we love under the shade of glorious clouds. And then, and then I hope we carry these moments with us as we descend back into the valleys, better prepared and encouraged to get to work. Mm, I love this story and I love this concept because it really does bring us back to that meeting place between this like heavenly glorified mm, deity and this like really embodied earthbound uh, deity as well. And like I really think that we find Jesus at the meeting place of those two things. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is just like a really juicy playground to explore some of those themes. So thanks for fleshing that out a little bit for us. Yes, of course. But maybe now do you want to turn to the Syrophoenician woman, what we've all been waiting for? Yes, one of my favorite stories ever. So this story is uh, can be found both in Matthew 15 and in Mark chapter 7. And I'm going to pull from both texts to uh, share a little bit of this story. The text says, quote, for a certain woman, whose young daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of Jesus and came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation, and she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. She cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. Jesus said unto his disciples, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of Israel. But she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled, for it is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. And she answered him, Yes, truth, Lord. Yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. For this saying, Go thy way. The devil is gone out of thy daughter." Beautiful. So that's just a little bit of, well, that's not just a little bit. That's the whole story, but that's the background that we'll kind of be working through as we explore an essay titled A Gentile Woman's Story written by Sharon Ring. And I remember first reading this essay a couple of years ago and really wrestling with the concepts that I was introduced to through it. Growing up LDS, I had a really particular picture of Jesus constructed in my mind. I pictured Jesus as perfectly kind, patient, polite, loving, and long-suffering. As my feminist awakening occurred, I pictured Jesus being all of these things, especially to women. There are many, many instances of Jesus' exceptional kindness and equitable treatment of women in the New Testament, and I truly believe that those are worth celebrating, and we do, right here on the podcast. But I also believe that this story challenges the feminist reader both because it challenges our picture of Jesus as a perfect man, but it also challenges our understanding of Jesus as a perfect ally. As we explore Sharon Ring's article and the story of the Syrophoenician woman, we hope that you remember to take a few deep breaths and remember that here on the podcast, we offer one way, not the way, to interpret the text. We've received 
We've received critiques in the past that sometimes we present an idea as if it's the only way to interpret the text, and we receive that critique with gratitude. I speak for myself here in saying that it's true. I often interpret the text one way, and I believe strongly in that interpretation. I'm a biased human and a really passionate one at that. But we say one way, not the way, because we recognize that there are as many interpretations of sacred text as there are readers. You may read the story of the Syrophoenician woman differently than I do and feel just as strongly and passionate about your interpretations as I do about mine. And that's okay. We can disagree and still be friends. But in my sharing of inter- but in our sharing of this interpretation today, we hope you can provide some space to be challenged by it as we initially were. I felt just as strongly once about a different interpretation of the Syrophoenician woman as I do about this one now. We have permission to change our minds and remain open to the possibility that there are other equally valuable interpretations while still finding ourselves with deep ties and devotions to what is pulling at our hearts. The Jesus that Sharon Ring presents is an image of Jesus unlike anything I've been introduced to before. But I'm immensely grateful for this image because it's informed my understanding of deity in positive ways. Last year, if you listened to us while we explored the Hebrew Bible, you might remember me approaching the God of that text as a God who was growing and learning to be God along the way, who made successes and mistakes. And that approach was so healing for me and also deeply informed by this essay. So Sharon Ring begins by saying, quote, The church has trouble with uppity women. The woman, like the woman in this story, they have shown a knack for confronting pretense, predictability, and easy solutions. The anonymous woman in this story comes across at first and second glance as an uppity woman. She is depicted by Mark as interrupting Jesus' rest, and then by Matthew as annoying the disciples. She is shown pursuing her request for help from Jesus by a verbal sparring match worthy of the craftiest teachers, a role explicitly denied to women in Jesus' society. She even wins the argument and is, and is said in the short run to have obtained the healing of her daughter and, in the long run, to have opened the way for Jesus and the church's mission beyond the Jewish community, end quote. In addition, Ring points out that the dialogue between the Syrophoenician woman and Jesus reverses the roles we're accustomed to seeing in the text. Ring writes, quote, Usually a situation or event provokes a hostile question from some onlooker of Jesus to which Jesus responds with a correcting or approving question and then drives home his point by a concluding statement, which the opponent would be hard put to deny. In this story, however, it is Jesus who provides the hostile saying and the woman whose retort trips him up and corrects him, end quote. And this reversal of roles makes this story unique. A huge crux of the story, however, is Jesus's initial treatment of this woman. Ring writes, quote, even if Even if the saying in Mark 27, where it's written, it is not meat to take the children's bread and cast it unto the dogs, in which Jesus essentially like equates this woman to a dog, even if that is meant to be understood as a proverb or a metaphor to the fact that this woman is a Gentile, the saying addressed to the woman is offensive in the extreme. Metaphor or not, Jesus is depicted as comparing the woman and her daughter to dogs. No churchly or scholarly gymnastics are able to get around that problem. Jesus' flippant, even cruel response to the woman defies justification. 
The very strangeness and the offensiveness of the story's portrayal of Jesus may suggest that the core of the story was indeed remembered as an incident in Jesus's life when even he was caught with his compassion down, end quote. I love that phrase, caught with his compassion down. And I like when I read it, I think about like, have I ever been caught with my compassion down? And I'm like, yes, this week yesterday, today. (laughs) Like I feel like I'm always caught with my compassion down. And this concept of Jesus being anything less than perfectly compassionate at all times and in all places really, really challenges me. When I first read this, it was nothing short of sacrilege to me. But Ring challenged me to see it differently, beginning with a reintroduction of the Syrophoenician woman. So let's talk about some of the things that we know about the Syrophoenician woman. We know that she was a resident of the Gentile region, including the cities of Tyre and Sidon, and therefore an ethnic foreigner to Jesus. We know that she was a woman, and in addition to that, a woman who was alone. She might have been a widow, divorced, or never been married. We know that the Syrophoenician woman was totally isolated from family support, as evidenced by the lack of male relative intercession on her behalf. And finally, we know that she was left with a daughter. Ring writes, quote, in her society's terms, her daughter is a further liability. Daughters usually cost money and were often considered to be troublesome pieces of property, weighing on their families until they could be safely married off to a suitable husband, end quote. But we also know other distinct and important important things. She didn't accept or act in alignment with the low esteem and restrictions of her station society held her in. She also didn't hesitate to approach Jesus or to, like, push back and harass him. Ring writes, quote, She valued her daughter, who was still with her, who was suffering and whose life was precious enough to demand healing and transformation, liberation from the alien forces that appeared to have taken over. For the, sake of her, for the sake of her daughter, this woman broke custom, went after what she needed, and stood up to this visiting rabbi and miracle worker and bested him in an argument. Finally, she got what she wanted. Her daughter was healed, end quote. So what do we learn from this exchange? I see and Ring sees three different ways that we can interpret this story. Yes, this story can be read as a parable about a ministry, specifically Jesus's and later the church's ministry, to this Gentile woman and her daughter and the Gentiles in general. Yes, this story can be read as a mother's intercessory ministry to her daughter. And yes, this story can be read as a Syrophoenician woman challenging Jesus to deepen his ministry and understanding of faith. Ring writes, quote, a dimension of ministry present in the story is the woman's ministry to Jesus by her faith, a faith that is no doctrinal confession of his messianic identity and no flattery of his apparently miraculous power, but rather faith as an act of trust, of engagement, of risking everything. This has the effect of enabling Jesus to see the situation in a different way. Her perspective, which was new to him, appears to free Jesus to respond, to heal, to become again the channel of God's redeeming presence. Whatever provoked the initial offensive response attributed to Jesus, whether we should conclude that he was tired or in a bad mood, or even that he appears to have participated in the racism and sexism that characterized his society, it is the Gentile woman who is said to have called his bluff, end quote. 
Ring then notes the gifts that the Syrophoenician woman offered to Jesus in the story. Ring writes, quote, Her wit, her sharp retort, was indeed her gift to Jesus, a gift that enabled his gift of healing in turn, her ministry that opened up the possibility of his. Her gift was not the submission or obedience seen as appropriate for women in her society, but rather the gift of her sharp insight, that of the poor and outcast who can see through a situation because they have few illusions to defend. Her gift was also courage, the courage of those who have little to lose and therefore can act in commitment and from faith on behalf of others for the sake of life, wholeness, and liberation, end quote. And so it appears that these gifts of wit and courage and insight were as valuable to Jesus as gold, frankincense, and myrrh. For Ring writes, quote, These highly political and encouraging words describe the quality of Jesus's ministry, the hallmarks of which are qualities of life and freedom, made known in painful human interaction. Here, Jesus himself must learn about being that sort of Christ from one of the poorest of the poor and the most despised of the outcast, a Gentile woman on her own, before God and humankind. Her gifts and her ministry become the vehicle of the gospel to Jesus and to us, end quote. In other words, Ring presents to us an image of Jesus who has ideas about faith upended by a woman not of his faith, and his conversation with her is what changes his mind and opens his ministry wider. This is, by far and wide, one of the most powerful feminist interpretations of sacred text that I've encountered in my study. As women reading the text, we've received Jesus in so many different ways in the New Testament. We've received his kindness alongside the women at the well. We've received his compassion alongside the woman with the issue of blood. We've received his reclamation alongside the daughter of Jairus. But as we read the text alongside the Syrophoenician woman, the roles are reversed. This time, we do not receive. We give. To me, this indicates that the relationship Jesus has with women isn't the one-sided benevolence that I've seen and expected from religious men. Instead, what I see here is an exchange of true equality a vulnerability to be influenced by someone else, and hear a call to return to relationality and reciprocity. In the story of the Syrophoenician woman, Jesus isn't a savior. He is an ally. He makes a mistake. He listens. He changes his mind, and then he follows through. I love this Jesus. It reminds me that Jesus doesn't want my blind submission, my obedience, my yes sirs, and let's go ask the bishop. Jesus doesn't want me to raise my hand and sustain somebody who doesn't even try to listen. No, Jesus wants all of me. My cleverness, my raise my hand and say what no one else will, my bear that abrasive testimony over the pulpit, my hell knows and my F-U's. The Syrophoenician woman teaches us that Jesus wants somebody who will talk back and ask for what they need as much as he wants someone who will tug at his robe for the same. In the words of Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, Quote, well-behaved women rarely make history, end quote. In the name of all the Syrophoenician women who are still challenging and changing the status quo with their courage, cleverness, and love, amen. Friends, thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We know your time and space is sacred, and we're grateful to have spent ours with you. 
If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you showed your support by sharing the podcast, leaving us a loving rating on iTunes, or connect with us on Instagram as The Faithful Feminists. We're deeply grateful for your kindness and encouragement. We love you so, so much, and we hope to spend more time with you again soon. Bye, friends! Bye, friends!